Kevin O'Rourke, you're an Irish Jesuit. You are based in Birmingham as the assistant director for the novices, the young men who are joining the Jesuits. The Pope's visit as a Jesuit, part of you, I'm sure, really looking forward to that. And yet a dark shadow has been cast over his visit in these days. Well, certainly the eyes of the world are going to be on Ireland and on Pope Francis this, this weekend. And there is no doubt at all that we have been through very turbulent times. And I suppose in many ways the Irish people are punch drunk from revelations of misdeeds and crimes of the past and cover-ups. And many people are sorely grieved. Many people feel not listened to. And I would say that the situation confronting Pope Francis at the moment is similar to the times of the Reformation. Because something on a worldwide scale is coming to light And it may well be that in many other continents things will come to light that have not come to light so far. And I know that Pope Francis wrote a very impassioned letter a few days ago, and I don't doubt his sincerity. And he has to really make some severe changes in the culture um, at every level in the church so that we will never again have abuse taking place and never again have cover-up taking place and that accountability at every level will be insisted upon and zero tolerance will be there but will be seen to be there. He has been strong in the letter in his condemnation of abuse which only anybody could do and the cover-up but people are really looking for action. You said there the Reformation, there was huge change after the Reformation. And I just I did my theology studies in Innsbruck in Austria, and one of my fellow students told me that in the province of Tyrol in Austria, the Jesuits took 60 years of consistent work in Tyrol to bring about the fruits of the Reformation. So to change a large ocean liner, to change its direction, an awful lot of people have to be willing to do what needs to be done. And to bring a policy into effect... And to have systemic change means changes in the culture, in attitudes, in practice, in good practice, in the use of authority and responsibility and accountability. And I simply hope and pray that Pope Francis is healthy enough and strong enough and has enough people around him to bring in and to put into effect policies which will let nothing escape that's brought to their attention. And I really do believe that in the same way that you don't want the police only responsible for their own supervision. I listened to something on Radio 4 BBC this morning where the the bailiffs want to be responsible for their own supervision. I think people of goodwill and ability should be part of the review of practices and accountability in the church as well. Yes, because one of the things that really, I think, hurt people and many Catholics is the cover-up. And that, for the the survivors of abuse, many of them have spoken about how they felt abused all over again. They weren't believed and then it was covered up. Pope Francis talks about, in his letter, about a change of culture and he attacks clericalism. Is that enough to cause a change in the way the institution was put first and protected and the way the needs and rights of children and the awful things that were done to them were able to be ignored, utterly dismissed by those who have moved abusers around from place to place and never seem to get the awfulness of what was being done to those children. A few things to say. I have had the painful privilege of being really friendly with somebody who suffered abuse as a child And I shed many tears with that person accompanying her on her journey of healing through life. And I know that it takes very little to trigger memories and to knock people back. And every time something comes out that's hollow or empty or just a platitude, it can very easily reopen wounds. That's one thing I'd say. Second thing is this. Just last week, I made it my business to read certain sections of the report from Pennsylvania. It really shocked me and hurt me deeply. And I had felt shame many, many times over the last 25 years or so. But I love the church. But later that evening, I was listening to a a recording of Queena Nadri Wirra, the lament of the Three Marys, a beautiful traditional Irish song, Ocon Ogsocono, Woe. Woe, woe. Mary at the foot of the cross. Is that the child I carried for three months? 
His face and his nose are all cut. Is that the hammer that put the nails through his hands? Is that the spear that went through his beautiful breast? Is that the child that I nursed on my knee? And I wept bitter tears for the sins of the church as I listened to that. And I have no embarrassment in saying that publicly. I wept for other people's wounds and griefs over the years, but I wept deeply sorrow, deep sorrow for the sins of the church. And I say, yeah, yeah, we need deep renewal, deep renewal. Do you think and are you hopeful that we are going to get that kind of change? It can't be done from within. They're going to have to bring experts from outside. We saw even with Mary Collins, the Pope set up this commission. We were all full of hope. Mary Collins was on it. She came back and she just said they couldn't do anything. And that that they can have that stranglehold that means somebody as good as her has to walk away. Are you hopeful that this can really change this time? Well, I did listen a few evenings ago to Mary for 20 minutes or thereabouts, a very fine interview, and she put things so kindly and so generously, and and she didn't beat around the bush. And I remember she was saying that the Pope went to, was it Cardinal Muller to say from the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, and the Pope was saying, we need to do this and this and this. And Cardinal Muller said, we, we have the resources, we have the equipment to do this. But it didn't happen. So I'm thinking that to centralise dealing with the problem is not going to be enough because the problem is so massive. There should be some kind of system in various parts of the world so that things are dealt with, if not locally, then nationally. Bureaucracy can be so, so cumbersome and so, so slow to deal with stuff. I mean, if you want to put in the GAA a motion to the Ord Corla for the annual meeting, it has to go to the club and then the county board and then maybe the provincial council. And things can be so, so slow in any bureaucracy and the church is not going to be any different. So I would certainly hope that systems and structures will be put in place that will be guaranteed to work and that there will be accountability. And I would hope that the Pope might be able to, when he meets the the people who survived abuse, when he meets them this weekend that they would be allowed to ask him, well, in practice, what do you hope to do? If he's saying he will work might and main to bring about change, he must have some idea of what he's going to do. Maybe it's not worked out enough so far, and one would hope it, it is well on the way to being worked out. What's going to be put in place? Who will have responsibility? Who will have authority? And all the rest. Because I have a very good friend, Pat Reardon, a Jesuit priest, and he says, an idea is great, but then there's the long march through the institution to make it work. And I wish it was going to be faster, but I hope he can give some clear indications to put people on the alert, your time has come. Yeah, because the victims themselves have given some insight. I mean, they want justice, they want atonement. And one of those things is for the way that some of the bishops, as has come out in the recent report, have delayed giving people who claim they've been abused access to certain papers. And then in, in causing that delay and in using the lawyers and loads of money, that at the end of the day, what happens is that the statute of limitations has run out. So there are practical things that could be done fairly quickly. If the the survivors are listened to, it is about justice and atonement. And anything that obstructs the course of justice is perverting the course of justice. And in fact, with the new legislation in Europe about uh, GDPR, data protection regulations, any civilian who thinks or is aware that any organisation has files about them, by law they're entitled to access them. If people have been prevented from knowing what's on files about them, then they can have recourse to law, as far as I understand. Bringing about cultural change can be a long process, but it can be quicker if the proper consultants are listened to and and if the leadership is there. And one hopes that those words will be matched with deeds, financial and otherwise, if necessary. And for something like that to be done, there has to be a real change of heart and will for people in authority, in responsibility, people who have obstructed stuff before. It meant that they never really got it. They never really listened or heard with their heart. They didn't feel the pain. They didn't appreciate the destruction and damage done to people. As I've said a few moments ago, I shared the journey of recovery and healing with somebody who went through all of this. Not, not, not within the church, not abused by the church. And in my job as assistant novice director in Birmingham, I brought somebody to speak to the novices who had been through an experience like this. 
and they were deeply moved just by listening with their hearts. They had no vested interest. They had nothing to protect. They weren't looking for a way out. How is the lawyer going to deal with this? People in authority and responsibility have to listen with their heart. And the person telling them about their journey must know that they have been heard. And anybody who really has heard will want to do something. You might ask me, what am I doing? For the last 20 years, I've been involved in formation of Jesuit students and novices. And I made it my business to find out something about formation of priests, religious and clergy for a celibate life. Until the mid-1970s, I think, the main focus of formation for clergy was on theology, philosophy, scripture, Bible and pastoral theology. And somewhere around the mid-1970s, obviously before he died, Pope Paul VI, he said, um, there are certain moral and physical characteristics needed in a person for priesthood. And he said, if they're not there, no amount of prayer is going to put them there. And he was talking really about human formation in addition to theological and intellectual formation, which was always of a high order. And then we had, God bless him, Pope St. John Paul II, and he brought out a document called I Will Give You Shepherds, Pastores Dabo Vobis. And he said, human formation is the foundation of all formation. And the language of the church is for affective maturity, that people are able to form healthy relationships with men and women, young and old, married and single, and they have to be aware of boundaries of different types of intimacy. For example, very few people know that there are eight types of intimacy. Not a lot of people understand the meaning of different, of different types of boundaries. So there are skills, there are values, there is knowledge about what does it mean to be psychosexually mature, to be affectively mature. And a lot of work has been done on that since the mid to late 70s, and it is a work in progress. But if you would study even a summary of the John Jay report into clerical abuse in the United States they were able to figure out, the, the American hierarchy asked them to do two pieces of research. What happened? How many clergy abused? How many people? How many times? When were they ordained? And then the second piece was, why did this happen? One of the conclusions was that the amount of abuse, clerical abuse of minors and other people, it dropped dramatically when human formation, in addition to academic and spiritual formation, when human formation began to take effect in the seminaries and the religious orders. And I've gone to India, I've gone to Thailand to teach some sisters about simply human development. It's very introductory. I don't have a doctorate or anything, but I've been involved in formation for 20 years or more. And I've given workshops maybe 40 times in the last 15 years or so to people from all over the world. Uh, did I mention India? In Britain, in Spain, in Germany, in Ireland, in the UK and so on. And it's, it's not rocket science. I was speaking to Father Orlando Torres, who was head of formation in the Jesuit order for a number of years, and he told a group of us formators, as we're called, he was looking through the files of men who wanted to be released from Jesuit life. And when it came to issues of celibacy and chastity, he said that there was a pattern of three things. Number one, the man in question didn't look for help in time. Number two, when he went looking for help, he didn't know the path he was on. He didn't have a language to describe Stuff about intimacy, stuff about boundaries, stuff about affective maturity, and so on and so forth. And number three, when he went looking for help to his spiritual director, the man he went looking for help to didn't know what to say to him. So basically, for the last 15, 20 years, I've been giving language classes. What is the language, the vocabulary to understand human development, a healthy life of chastity? Where do the sacraments, where does community life, where do healthy relationships, where does your theological formation, your spiritual direction? There must be a lot of things in place for a person to be really content and fruitful in a healthy life of chastity and celibacy. And do you think something like that kind of training would throw up people who would have paedophilic tendencies that have clearly got through many the net? 
I wouldn't be able to say that my little workshops, they're like going wrong again, you know, very introductory, but it helps to resource people. But also I would say that the screening of candidates for religious life and for seminary life, the screening is much tighter and much more exhaustive than it used to be. And people are sent for assessment. And it's not it's not science, but there is a mixture of art and science and experience goes into the discernment of whether a person should be accepted into a seminary or, or a religious order. And you're saying there's one piece of a jigsaw and there are a lot of pieces that are going to need to be put in place in terms of the cover-ups and the same pattern that we read yeah. over and over again from Murphy to Ryan to the report in Pennsylvania. People in charge just moved people around, people who protect an institution at all costs. Is that the culture that has to be really challenged and how does one begin to, to do that? I would say certainly first off, anybody who's being appointed a bishop or a provincial or a superior of religious community, it should be mandatory that they listen with their heart to people who've suffered abuse so that they know okay you can't really know it fully but at least that you've heard it enough to move you to say not on my watch I'm going to be really careful that you see in the past go back maybe 20-25 years the fallback position was send for the lawyer you know how are we going to protect the institution and only gradually it dawned on people it's a pastoral response, it's a response of justice on the part of the person who suffered who has to be brought in. So talking about a change of culture, I'm very happy to see Pope Francis really try to nail repeatedly clericalism because clericalism is kind of, it's like a caste system that people have privilege, uh, people are on a pedestal whether they like it or not, people have a position of trust and sometimes that is taken advantage of by people in, the, in, in that situation, by, by, by clergy. It's the closing of ranks, it's the cover-up, it's moving somebody around. They have been the hallmarks of, of, of clericalism. Privilege, above the law, uh, canon law says this, so we won't go to the police, etc., etc. So I would say formation, training, um, accountability, all those things, but it comes back to, you see, this is a traumatic time for so many people, both people and people who have made a mess of it, and now the, the headlights are on them, and it's been traumatic from the very beginning, from the people who were abused. But the response of the traumatised people who were caught like, like rabbits in the headlights has been a bit like uh, the process of, of, of trauma and grieving. There is denial there is anger, there is guilt, there is blaming somebody else, and maybe eventually the penny begins to drop and the insight begins to come. But there has been institutional trauma and institutional denial. And now I think that the time is up. And I think listening to you there, for many ordinary Catholics who, as one group of theologians put it, we didn't build the house but we live in it they also are deeply affected it's hard to find words for the lostness that you can feel and wanting to show your solidarity with the survivors it's very difficult for Catholics who really really care and who also love their faith and are following Jesus Christ whom they love and I'm one of those people too that I love the church I wept for its sins and it is very difficult to be a person of faith nowadays is bittersweet and I suppose the old clichés go back to the sources and go back to the gospel, go back to the humility of Jesus, go back to whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. We could spend the whole rest of our lives trying to, to get back and to really live what we believe, but it is very painful. You know, sometimes I feel safer walking around in a collar in Birmingham on my way to St. Mass in the prison every Sunday morning than I would walking around parts of Ireland because I'm living in the house that was built by other people and we have the sins of generations. You know that old, the parents commit the sins and the children for four generations. I mean, let me put it like this. The Irish famine will never be forgotten. It's into the Irish psyche. And this is on a par. This experience of abuse and cover-up and institutional failure has gone right down into the Irish psyche. And it will be a long, long time. The church will never recover the position of, pil of, of privilege it had before. Let me tell you this interesting thing. I needed a Bible about a month ago when I was doing a little bit of work in a parish. And somebody found a very old Bible, maybe came out in the 1930s, was, was published in the United States. And in the, inside the front few pages, there were photographs of the four or five North American cardinals 
each one outdoing the other in splendor and glory. Oh my goodness, they really were princes of the church. Simplicity, the carpenter, the pilgrim saviour, all of that. Privilege and pomp and, you know, the queen herself only very, very occasionally dresses up in all her finery. And I think simplicity and being able to listen with our hearts to the people who suffer the grind of every day. I'm very keen to use the word reference group. It's a term in sociology. Who are the important people you think of in certain contexts? So, okay, I've evolved poverty. I have access to funds. But if I'm going to spend money, who do I think of? Can I justify this spending of money for myself when I talk to this person and this person? Some of them very close relatives. So I think the reference group for people in authority and power needs to be the ones who who have been walking on glass in bare feet, who have suffered heartbreak and grief and misery for so long. Those who have been abused. Those who have have been abused, yeah. So how do you look now to the weekend with the Pope coming to Ireland? And he is going to meet, we've been told, with survivors of abuse. I think he will have spoken and listened with his heart to people who've been abused in many, many countries. And I gather from the speed with which he came out with that letter a few days ago, he must be grievously wounded in his heart. And I think that has moved him to do this in pre- unprecedented step. And when he listens with his heart to people who speak to him in Dublin this weekend, I really hope and I trust that it will move him further along to take concrete steps to put in place protection, prevention, healing, accountability, all of this. He is in charge of an enormous organisation and huge organisations are very often conservative by nature. So it's going to take him to have structures and systems around him, but he needs to be the driving force. I'm very happy to recall shortly after Pope Francis was elected that Archbishop Martin said, on a radio interview, I stopped the car to listen to it one day. He said, um, Pope Francis is a very nice man, but he's tough as nails. And I hope really that, yes, that he will combine both of those, that he will have the strength and the energy to have people around him and to have systems in place for systemic change. It will have to go right to the roots of a lot of attitudes and values. I think he's on the right trajectory and I hope just meeting the Irish survivors will nudge him significantly further on. Kevin O'Rourke, you're an Irish Jesuit. You are based in Birmingham as the assistant director for the novices, the young men who are joining the Jesuits. The Pope's visit as a Jesuit Part of you, I'm sure, really looking forward to that. And yet a dark shadow has been cast over his visit in these days. Well, certainly the eyes of the world are going to be on Ireland and on Pope Francis this this weekend. And there is no doubt at all that we have been through very turbulent times. And I suppose in many ways the Irish people are punch drunk from revelations of misdeeds and crimes of the past and cover-ups. And many people are sorely grieved. Many people feel not listened to. And I would say that the situation confronting Pope Francis at the moment is similar to the times of the Reformation. Because something on a worldwide scale is coming to light. And it may well be that in many other continents things will come to light that have not come to light so far. And I know that Pope Francis wrote a very impassioned letter a few days ago and I don't doubt his sincerity, and he has to really make some severe changes in the culture um, at every level in the church so that we will never again have abuse taking place and never again have cover-up taking place, and that accountability at every level will be insisted upon, and zero tolerance will be there but will be seen to be there. He has been strong in the letter in his condemnation of abuse, which only anybody could do, and the cover-up. But people are really looking for action. You said there, the Reformation. There was huge change after the Reformation. And I I did my theology studies in Innsbruck in Austria, and one of my fellow students told me that in the province of Tyrol in Austria, the Jesuits took 60 years of consistent work in Tyrol, to bring about the fruits of the Reformation. So to change a large ocean liner, to change its direction, an awful lot of people have to be willing to do what needs to be done. And 
To bring a policy into effect and to have systemic change means changes in the culture, in attitudes, in practice, in good practice, in the use of authority and responsibility and accountability. And I simply hope and pray that Pope Francis is healthy enough and strong enough and has enough people around him to bring in and to put into effect policies which will let nothing escape that's brought to their attention. And I really do believe that in the same way that you don't want the police only responsible for their own supervision. I listened to something on Radio 4 BBC this morning where the, the bailiffs want to be responsible for their own supervision. I think people of goodwill and ability should be part of the review of practices and accountability in the church as well. Yes, because one of the things that really, I think, hurt people and many Catholics is the cover-up. And that, for the, the survivors of abuse, many of them have spoken about how they felt abused all over again. They weren't believed and then it was covered up. Pope Francis talks about, in his letter, about a change of culture and he attacks clericalism. Is that enough to cause a change in the way the institution was put first and protected and the way the needs and rights of children and the awful things that were done to them were able to be ignored, utterly dismissed by those who have moved abusers around from place to place and never seem to get the awfulness of what was being done to those children. A few things to say. I have had the painful privilege of being really friendly with somebody who suffered abuse as a child and I shed many tears with that person accompanying her on her journey of healing through life. And I know that it takes very little to trigger memories and to knock people back. And every time something comes out that's hollow or empty or just a platitude, it can very easily reopen wounds. That's one thing I'd say. Second thing is this. Just last week, I made it my business to read certain sections of the report from Pennsylvania. It really shocked me and hurt me deeply. And I had felt shame many, many times over the last 25 years or so. But I love the church. But later that evening, I was listening to a, a recording of Queena Nadri Wirra, the lament of the Three Marys, a beautiful traditional Irish song, Ocon Ogsocono, Woe. Woe, woe. Mary at the foot of the cross, is that the child I carried for three months? His face and his nose are all cut. Is that the hammer that put the nails through his hands? Is that the spear that went through his beautiful breast? Is that the child that I nursed on my knee? And I wept bitter tears for the sins of the church as I listened to that. And I have no embarrassment in saying that publicly. I wept for other people's wounds and griefs over the years, but I wept deeply sorrow, deep sorrow for the sins of the church. And I say, yeah, yeah, we need deep renewal, deep renewal. Do you think and are you hopeful that we are going to get that kind of change? It can't be done from within. They're going to have to bring experts from outside. We saw even with Mary Collins, the Pope set up this commission. We were all full of hope. Mary Collins was on it. She came back and she just said they couldn't do anything. And that they can have that stranglehold that means somebody as good as her has to walk away. Are you hopeful that this can really change this time? Well, I did listen a few evenings ago to Mary for 20 minutes or thereabouts. A very fine interview and she put things so kindly and so generously in. And she didn't beat around the bush. And I remember she was saying that the Pope went to, was it Cardinal Muller to say from the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, and the Pope was saying, we need to do this and this and this. And Cardinal Muller said, we, we have the resources, we have the equipment to do this. But it didn't happen. So I'm thinking that to centralise dealing with the problem is not going to be enough because the problem is so massive. There should be some kind of system in various parts of the world so that things are dealt with, if not locally, then nationally. Bureaucracy can be so, so cumbersome and so, so slow to deal with stuff. I mean, if you want to put in the GAA a motion to the Ord Corla for the annual meeting, it has to go to the club and then the county board and then maybe the provincial council. 
And things can be so, so slow in any bureaucracy. And the church is not going to be any different. So I would certainly hope that systems and structures will be put in place that will be guaranteed to work and that there will be accountability. And I would hope that the Pope might be able to, when he meets the the people who survived abuse, when he meets them this weekend, that they will be allowed to ask him, well, in practice, what do you hope to do? If he's saying he will work might and main to bring about change, he must have some idea of what he's going to do. Maybe it's not worked out enough so far, and one would hope it, it is well on the way to being worked out. What's going to be put in place? Who will have responsibility? Who will have authority? And all the rest. Because I have a very good friend, Pat Reardon, a Jesuit priest, and he says, an idea is great, but then there's the long march through the institution to make it work. And I wish it was going to be faster, But I hope he can give some clear indications to put people on the alert. Your time has come. Yeah, because the victims themselves have given some insight. I mean, they want justice. They want atonement. And one of those things is for the way that some of the bishops, as has come out in the recent report, have delayed giving people who claim they've been abused access to certain papers. And then in, in causing that delay and in using the lawyers and loads of money, that at the end of the day, what happens is that the statute of limitations has run out. So there are practical things that could be done fairly quickly. If the, the survivors are listened to, it is about justice and atonement. And anything that obstructs the course of justice is perverting the course of justice. And in fact, with the new legislation in Europe about uh, is it GDPR, data protection regulations, any civilian who thinks or is aware that any organisation has files about them, by law they're entitled to access them. If people have been prevented from knowing what's on files about them, then they can have recourse to law, as far as I understand. Bringing about cultural change can be a long process, but it can be quicker if the proper consultants are listened to and and if the leadership is there. And one hopes that those words will be matched with deeds, financial and otherwise, if necessary. And for something like that to be done, there has to be a real change of heart and will for people in authority, in responsibility, people who have obstructed stuff before. It meant that they never really got it. They never really listened or heard with their heart. They didn't feel the pain. They didn't appreciate the destruction and damage done to people. As I've said a few moments ago, I shared the journey of recovery and healing with somebody who went through all of this. Not not, not within the church, not abused by the church. And in my job as assistant novice director in Birmingham, I brought somebody to speak to the novices who had been through an experience like this. And they were deeply moved just by listening with their hearts. They had no vested interest. They had nothing to protect. They weren't looking for a way out. How is the lawyer going to deal with this? People in authority and responsibility have to listen with their heart. And the person telling them about their journey must know that they have been heard. And anybody who really has heard will want to do something. You might ask me, what am I doing? For the last 20 years, I've been involved in formation of Jesuit students and novices. And I made it my business to find out something about formation of priests, religious and clergy for a celibate life. Until the mid-1970s, I think, the main focus of formation for clergy was on theology, philosophy, scripture, Bible and pastoral theology. And somewhere around the mid-1970s, obviously before he died, Pope Paul VI, he said, um, there are certain moral and physical characteristics needed in a person for priesthood. And he said, if they're not there, no amount of prayer is going to put them there. And he was talking really about human formation in addition to theological and intellectual formation, which was always of a high order. And then we had, God bless him, Pope St. John Paul II, and he brought out a document called I Will Give You Shepherds, Pastores Dabo Vobis. And he said, human formation is the foundation of all formation. And the language of the church is for affective maturity, that people are able to form healthy relationships with men and women, young and old, married and single, And they have to be aware of boundaries of different types of intimacy. For example, very few people know that there are eight types of intimacy. 
not a lot of people understand the meaning of different, different types of boundaries. So there are skills, there are values, there is knowledge. But what does it mean to be psychosexually mature, to be affectively mature? And a lot of work has been done on that since the mid to late 70s, and it is a work in progress. But if you would study even a summary of the John Jay report into clerical abuse in the United States they were able to figure out, the, the American hierarchy asked them to do two pieces of research. What happened? How many clergy abused? How many people? How many times? When were they ordained? And then the second piece was, why did this happen? One of the conclusions was that the amount of abuse, clerical abuse of minors and other people, it dropped dramatically when human formation, in addition to academic and spiritual formation, when human formation began to take effect in the seminaries and the religious orders. And I've gone to India, I've gone to Thailand to teach some sisters about simply human development. It's very introductory. I don't have a doctorate or anything, but I've been involved in formation for 20 years or more. And I've given workshops maybe 40 times in the last 15 years or so to people from all over the world. Uh, did I mention India? In Britain, in Spain, in Germany, in Ireland, in the UK and so on. And it's, it's not rocket science. I was speaking to Father Orlando Torres, who was head of formation in the Jesuit order for a number of years. And he told a group of us formators, as we're called, he was looking through the files of men who wanted to be released from Jesuit life. And when it came to issues of celibacy and chastity, he said that there was a pattern of three things. Number one, the man in question didn't look for help in time. Number two, when he went looking for help, he didn't know the path he was on. He didn't have a language to describe Stuff about intimacy, stuff about boundaries, stuff about affective maturity, and so on and so forth. And number three, when he went looking for help to a spiritual director, the man he went looking for help to didn't know what to say to him. So basically, for the last 15, 20 years, I've been giving language classes. What is the language, the vocabulary to understand human development, a healthy life of chastity? Where do the sacraments, where does community life, where do healthy relationships, where does your theological formation, your spiritual direction? There must be a lot of things in place for a person to be really content and fruitful in a healthy life of chastity and celibacy. And do you think something like that kind of training would throw up people who would have paedophilic tendencies that have clearly got through many the net? I wouldn't be able to say that my little workshops, they're like mm. bun hain, you know, very introductory, but it helps to resource people. But also I would say that the screening of candidates for religious life and for seminary life, the screening is much tighter and much more exhaustive than it used to be. And people are sent for assessment. And it's not it's not science, but there is a mixture of art and science and experience goes into the discernment of whether a person should be accepted into a seminary or, or a religious order. And you're saying there's one piece of a jigsaw and there are a lot of pieces that are going to need to be put in place in terms of the cover-ups and the same pattern that we read over and over again from Murphy to Ryan to the report in Pennsylvania. People in charge just moved people around, people who protect an institution at all costs. Is that the culture that has to be really challenged and how does one begin to, to do that? I would say certainly first off, anybody who's being appointed a bishop or a provincial or a superior of religious community, it should be mandatory that they listen with their heart to people who have suffered abuse so that they know, OK, you can't really know it fully, but at least that you've heard it enough to move you to say, not on my watch. I'm going to be really careful that, you see, in the past, go back maybe 20, 25 years, the fallback position was send for the lawyer. You know, how are we going to protect the institution? And only gradually it dawned on people, it's a pastoral response, it's a response of justice on the part of the person who suffered who has to be brought in. So talking about a change of culture, I'm very happy to see Pope Francis really try to nail repeatedly clericalism, because clericalism is kind of, it's like a caste system, that people have privilege, uh, people are on a pedestal whether they like it or not, people have a position of trust. And sometimes that is taken advantage of by people in, the, in, in that situation, by, by, by clergy. It's the closing of ranks, it's the cover-up, it's moving somebody around. They have been the hallmarks of, of, of clericalism. Privilege, above the law, 
uh, canon law says this, so we won't go to the police, etc., etc. So I would say formation, training, um, accountability, all those things, but it comes back to, you see, this is a traumatic time for so many people, both people and people who have made a mess of it, and now the, the headlights are on them, and it's been traumatic from the very beginning, from the people who were abused. But the response of the traumatised people who were caught like, like rabbits in the headlights has been a bit like uh, the process of, of, of trauma and grieving. There is denial, there is anger, there is guilt, there is blaming somebody else, and maybe eventually the penny begins to drop and the insight begins to come. But there has been institutional trauma and institutional denial. And now I think that the time is up. And I think listening to you there, for many ordinary Catholics who, as one group of theologians put it, we didn't build the house, but we live in it. They also are deeply affected. It's hard to find words for the lostness that you can feel and wanting to show your solidarity with the survivors. It's very difficult for Catholics who really, really care and who also love their faith and are following Jesus Christ whom they love. And I'm one of those people too that I love the church. I wept for its sins. And it is very difficult to be a person of faith nowadays is bittersweet. And I suppose the old cliché is go back to the sources and go back to the gospel, go back to the humility of Jesus, go back to whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. We could spend the whole rest of our lives trying to, to get back and to really live what we believe, but it is very painful. You know, sometimes I feel safer walking around in a collar in Birmingham on my way to say Mass in the prison every Sunday morning than I would walking around parts of Ireland because I'm living in the house that was built by other people and we have the sins of generations. You know that old, the parents commit the sins and the children for four generations. I mean, let me put it like this. The Irish famine will never be forgotten. It's into the Irish psyche. And this is on a par. This experience of abuse and cover-up and institutional failure has gone right down into the Irish psyche. And it will be a long, long time. The church will never recover the position of, of, of privilege it had before. Let me tell you this interesting thing. I needed a Bible about a month ago when I was doing a little bit of work in a parish. And somebody found a very old Bible, maybe came out in the 1930s, was, was published in the United States. And in the, inside the front few pages, there were photographs of the four or five North American cardinals each one outdoing the other in splendour and glory. Oh my goodness, they really were princes of the church. Simplicity, the carpenter, the pilgrim saviour, all of that. Privilege and pomp and, you know, the queen herself only very, very occasionally dresses up in all her finery. And I think simplicity and being able to listen with our hearts to the people who suffer the grind of every day. I'm very keen to use the word reference group. It's a term in sociology. Who are the important people you think of in certain contexts? So, OK, I've evolved poverty. I have access to funds. But if I'm going to spend money, who do I think of? Can I justify this spending of money for myself when I talk to this person and this person? Some of them very close relatives. So I think the reference group for people in authority and power needs to be the ones who, who have been walking on glass in bare feet, who have suffered heartbreak and grief and misery for so long. Those who have been abused. Those who have, those who have been abused, yeah. So how do you look now to the weekend with the Pope coming to Ireland? And he is going to meet, we've been told, with survivors of abuse. I think he will have spoken and listened with his heart to people who've been abused in many, many countries. And I gather from the speed with which he came out with that letter a few days ago, he must be grievously wounded in his heart. And I think that has moved him to do this in pre unprecedented step. And when he listens with his heart to people who speak to him in Dublin this weekend, I really hope and I trust that it will move him further along to take concrete steps to put in place protection, prevention, healing, accountability, all of this. He is in charge of an enormous organisation and huge organisations are very often conservative by nature. So it's going to take him to have structures and systems around him, but he needs to be the driving force. I'm very happy to recall shortly after Pope Francis was elected 
that Archbishop Martin said on a radio interview, I stopped the car to listen to it one day. He said, um, Pope Francis is a very nice man, but he's tough as nails. And I hope really that, yes, that he will combine both of those, that he will have the strength and the energy to have people around him and to have systems in place for systemic change. It will have to go right to the roots of a lot of attitudes and values. I think he's on the right trajectory, and I hope just meeting the Irish survivors will nudge him significantly further on. Kevin O'Rourke, you're an Irish Jesuit. You are based in Birmingham as the assistant director for the novices, the young men who are joining the Jesuits. The Pope's visit as a Jesuit Part of you, I'm sure, really looking forward to that. And yet a dark shadow has been cast over his visit in these days. Well, certainly the eyes of the world are going to be on Ireland and on Pope Francis this this weekend. And there is no doubt at all that we have been through very turbulent times. And I suppose in many ways the Irish people are punch drunk from revelations of misdeeds and crimes of the past and cover-ups. And many people are sorely grieved. Many people feel not listened to. And I would say that the situation confronting Pope Francis at the moment is similar to the times of the Reformation. Because something on a worldwide scale is coming to light. And it may well be that in many other continents things will come to light that have not come to light so far. And I know that Pope Francis wrote a very impassioned letter a few days ago. And I don't doubt his sincerity. And he has to really make some severe changes in the culture um, at every level in the church so that we will never again have abuse taking place and never again have cover-up taking place. And that accountability at every level will be insisted upon and zero tolerance will be there but will be seen to be there. He has been strong in the letter in his condemnation of abuse, which only anybody could do, and the cover-up. But people are really looking for action. You said there, the Reformation. There was huge change after the Reformation. And I I did my theology studies in Innsbruck in Austria, and one of my fellow students told me that in the province of Tyrol in Austria, the Jesuits took 60 years of consistent work in Tyrol, to bring about the fruits of the Reformation. So to change a large ocean liner, to change its direction, an awful lot of people have to be willing to do what needs to be done. And to bring a policy into effect and to have systemic change means changes in the culture, in attitudes, in practice, in good practice, and the use of authority and responsibility and accountability. And I simply hope and pray that Pope Francis is healthy enough and strong enough and has enough people around him to bring in and to put into effect policies which will let nothing escape that's brought to their attention. And I really do believe that in the same way that you don't want the police only responsible for their own supervision... I listened to something on Radio 4 BBC this morning where the, the bailiffs want to be responsible for their own supervision. I think people of goodwill and ability should be part of the review of practices and accountability in the church as well. Yes, because one of the things that really, I think, hurt people and many Catholics is the cover-up. And that, for the, the survivors of abuse, many of them have spoken about how they felt abused all over again. They weren't believed and then it was covered up. Pope Francis talks about, in his letter, about a change of culture and he attacks clericalism. Is that enough to cause a change in the way the institution was put first and protected and the way the needs and rights of children and the awful things that were done to them were able to be ignored, utterly dismissed by those who have moved abusers around from place to place and never seem to get the awfulness of what was being done to those children. A few things to say. I have had the painful privilege of being really friendly with somebody who suffered abuse as a child And I shed many tears with that person accompanying her on her journey of healing through life. And I know that it takes very little to trigger memories and to knock people back. And every time something comes out that's hollow or empty or just a platitude, it can very easily reopen wounds. That's one thing I'd say. Second thing is this. Just last week, I made it my business to read 
certain sections of the report from Pennsylvania. It really shocked me and hurt me deeply. And I had felt shame many, many times over the last 25 years or so. But I love the church. But later that evening, I was listening to a, a recording of Queena Nadri Wirra, the lament of the Three Marys, a beautiful traditional Irish song, Ocon Ogsocono, Woe, 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 Mary at the foot of the cross, is that the child I carried for three months? His face and his nose are all cut. Is that the hammer that put the nails through his hands? Is that the spear that went through his beautiful breast? Is that the child that I nursed on my knee? And I wept bitter tears for the sins of the church as I listened to that. And I have no embarrassment in saying that publicly. I wept for other people's wounds and griefs over the years, but I wept deeply sorrow, deep sorrow for the sins of the church. And I say, yeah, yeah, we need deep renewal, deep renewal. Do you think... And are you hopeful that we are going to get that kind of change? It can't be done from within. They're going to have to bring experts from outside. We saw even with Mary Collins, the Pope set up this commission. We were all full of hope. Mary Collins was on it. She came back and she just said they couldn't do anything. And that that they can have that stranglehold. It means somebody as good as her has to walk away. Are you hopeful that this can really change this time? Well, I did listen a few evenings ago to Mary for 20 minutes or thereabouts, a very fine interview, and she put things so kindly and so generously, and and she didn't beat around the bush. And I remember she was saying that the Pope went to, was it Cardinal Muller to say from the Congregation of Doctrine of the Faith, and the Pope was saying, we need to do this and this and this, and Cardinal Muller said, "We, we have the resources, we have the equipment to do this, but it didn't happen. So I'm thinking that to centralise dealing with the problem is not going to be enough because the problem is so massive. There should be some kind of system in various parts of the world so that things are dealt with, if not locally, then nationally. Bureaucracy can be so, so cumbersome and so, so slow to deal with stuff. I mean, if you want to put in the GAA a motion to the Ord Corla for the annual meeting, it has to go to the club and then the county board and then maybe the provincial council. And things can be so, so slow in any bureaucracy. And the church is not going to be any different. So I would certainly hope that systems and structures will be put in place that will be guaranteed to work and that there will be accountability. And I would hope that the Pope might be able to, when he meets the the people who survived abuse, when he meets them this weekend, that they will be allowed to ask him, well, in practice, what do you hope to do? If he's saying he will work might and main to bring about change, he must have some idea of what he's going to do. Maybe it's not worked out enough so far, and one would hope it it is well on the way to being worked out. What's going to be put in place? Who will have responsibility? Who will have authority? And all the rest. Because I have a very good friend, Pat Reardon, a Jesuit priest, and he says an idea is great, but then there's the long march through the institution to make it work. And I wish it was going to be faster, But I hope he can give some clear indications to put people on the alert. Your time has come. Yeah, because the victims themselves have given some insight. I mean, they want justice. They want atonement. And one of those things is for the way that some of the bishops, as has come out in the recent report, have delayed giving people who claim they've been abused access to certain papers. And then in, in causing that delay and in using the lawyers and loads of money, that at the end of the day, what happens is that the statute of limitations has run out. So there are practical things that could be done fairly quickly. If the, the survivors are listened to, it is about justice and atonement. And anything that obstructs the course of justice is perverting the course of justice. And in fact, with the new legislation in Europe about uh, is it GDPR, data protection regulations, any civilian who thinks or is aware that any organisation has files about them, by law they're entitled to access them. If people have been prevented from knowing what's on files about them, then they can have recourse to law, as far as I understand. Bringing about cultural change can be a long process, but it can be quicker if the proper consultants are listened to and, and if the leadership is there. And one hopes that those words will be matched with deeds, financial and otherwise, if necessary. And for something like that to be done, there has to be a real change of heart 
and will for people in authority, in responsibility, people who have obstructed stuff before. It meant that they never really got it. They never really listened or heard with their heart. They didn't feel the pain. They didn't appreciate the destruction and damage done to people. As I've said a few moments ago, I shared the journey of recovery and healing with somebody who went through all of this. Not, not, not within the church, not abused by the church. And in my job as assistant novice director in Birmingham, I brought somebody to speak to the novices who had been through an experience like this. And they were deeply moved just by listening with their hearts. They had no vested interest. They had nothing to protect. They weren't looking for a way out. How is the lawyer going to deal with this? People in authority and responsibility have to listen with their heart. And the person telling them about their journey must know that they have been heard. And anybody who really has heard will want to do something. You might ask me, what am I doing? For the last 20 years, I've been involved in formation of Jesuit students and novices. And I made it my business to find out something about formation of priests, religious and clergy for a celibate life. Until the mid-1970s, I think, the main focus of formation for clergy was on theology, philosophy, scripture, Bible and pastoral theology. And somewhere around the mid-1970s, obviously before he died, Pope Paul VI, he said, um, there are certain moral and physical characteristics needed in a person for priesthood. And he said, if they're not there, no amount of prayer is going to put them there. And he was talking really about human formation in addition to theological and intellectual formation, which was always of a high order. And then we had, God bless him, Pope St. John Paul II, and he brought out a document called I Will Give You Shepherds, Pastores Dabo Vobis. And he said, human formation is the foundation of all formation. And the language of the church is for affective maturity, that people are able to form healthy relationships with men and women, young and old, married and single, And they have to be aware of boundaries of different types of intimacy. For example, very few people know that there are eight types of intimacy. Not a lot of people understand the meaning of different different types of boundaries. So there are skills, there are values, there is knowledge about what does it mean to be psychosexually mature, to be affectively mature. And a lot of work has been done on that since the mid to late 70s, and it is a work in progress. But if you would study even a summary of the John Jay report into clerical abuse in the United States they were able to figure out, the the American hierarchy asked them to do two pieces of research. What happened? How many clergy abused? How many people? How many times? When were they ordained? And then the second piece was, why did this happen? One of the conclusions was that the amount of abuse, clerical abuse of minors and other people, it dropped dramatically when human formation, in addition to academic and spiritual formation, when human formation began to take effect in the seminaries and the religious orders. And I've gone to India, I've gone to Thailand to teach some sisters about simply human development. It's very introductory. I don't have a doctorate or anything, but I've been involved in formation for 20 years or more. And I've given workshops maybe 40 times in the last 15 years or so to people from all over the world. Uh, Did I mention India? In Britain, in Spain, in Germany, in Ireland, in the UK and so on. And it's, it's not rocket science. I was speaking to Father Orlando Torres, who was head of formation in the Jesuit order for a number of years. And he told a group of us formators, as we're called, he was looking through the files of men who wanted to be released from Jesuit life. And when it came to issues of celibacy and chastity, he said that there was a pattern of three things. Number one, the man in question didn't look for help in time. Number two, when he went looking for help, he didn't know the path he was on. He didn't have a language to describe stuff about intimacy, stuff about boundaries, stuff about affective maturity, and so on and so forth. And number three, when he went looking for help to his spiritual director, the man he went looking for help to didn't know what to say to him. So basically, for the last 15, 20 years, I've been giving language classes. What is the language, the vocabulary to understand human development, a healthy life of chastity, where do the sacraments, where does community life, where do healthy relationships, where does your theological formation, your spiritual direction. There must be a lot of things in place for a person to be really content 
and fruitful in a healthy life of chastity and celibacy. And do you think something like that kind of training would throw up people who would have paedophilic tendencies that have clearly got through many the net? I wouldn't be able to say that my little workshops, they're like Bunrang Ahain, you know, very introductory, but it helps to resource people. But also I would say that the screening of candidates for religious life and for seminary life, the screening is much tighter and much more exhaustive than it used to be. And people are sent for assessment. And it's not it's not science, but there is a mixture of art and science and experience goes into the discernment of whether a person should be accepted into a seminary or, or a religious order. And you're saying there's one piece of a jigsaw and there are a lot of pieces that are going to need to be put in place in terms of the cover-ups and the same pattern that we read over and over again from Murphy to Ryan to the report in Pennsylvania. People in charge just moved people around, people who protect an institution at all costs. Is that the culture that has to be really challenged and how does one begin to, to do that? I would say certainly first off, anybody who's being appointed a bishop or a provincial or a superior of religious community, it should be mandatory that they listen with their heart to people who have suffered abuse so that they know, OK, you can't really know it fully, but at least that you've heard it enough to move you to say, not on my watch. I'm going to be really careful that, you see, in the past, go back maybe 20, 25 years, the fallback position was send for the lawyer. You know, how are we going to protect the institution? And only gradually it dawned on people. It's a pastoral response. It's a response of justice on the part of the person who suffered who has to be brought in. So talking about a change of culture, I'm very happy to see Pope Francis really try to nail repeatedly clericalism because clericalism is kind of, it's like a caste system that people have privilege, uh, people are on a pedestal whether they like it or not, people have a position of trust and sometimes that is taken advantage of by people in, the, in, in that situation, by, by, by clergy. It's the closing of ranks, it's the cover-up, it's moving somebody around. They have been the hallmarks of, of, of clericalism. Privilege, above the law, uh, canon law says this, so we won't go to the police, etc., etc. So I would say formation, training... Um, accountability, all those things, but it comes back to, you see, this is a traumatic time for so many people, both people and people who have made a mess of it, and now the, the headlights are on them, and it's been traumatic from the very beginning, from the people who were abused. But the response of the traumatised people who were caught like, like rabbits in the headlights has been a bit like uh, the process of, of, of trauma and grieving. There is denial there is anger, there is guilt, there is blaming somebody else, and maybe eventually the penny begins to drop and the insight begins to come. But there has been institutional trauma and institutional denial. And now I think that the time is up. And I think listening to you there, for many ordinary Catholics who, as one group of theologians put it, we didn't build the house but we live in it they also are deeply affected it's hard to find words for the lostness that you can feel and wanting to show your solidarity with the survivors it's very difficult for Catholics who really really care and who also love their faith and are following Jesus Christ whom they love and I'm one of those people too that I love the church I wept for its sins and it is very difficult to be a person of faith nowadays is bittersweet and I suppose the old cliches go back to the sources and go back to the gospel, go back to the humility of Jesus, go back to whatever you do to the least of my brothers and sisters, you do it to me. We could spend the whole rest of our lives trying to, to get back and to really live what we believe, but it is very painful. You know, sometimes I feel safer walking around in a collar in Birmingham on my way to say Mass in the prison every Sunday morning than I would walking around parts of Ireland because I'm living in the house that was built by other people and we have the sins of generations, you know, that old, the parents commit the sins and the children for four generations. I mean, let me put it like this. The Irish famine will never be forgotten. It's into the Irish psyche. And this is on a par. This experience of abuse and cover up and institutional failure has gone right down into the Irish psyche. And it will be a long, long time. The church will never recover the position of, pil of, of privilege it had before. Let me tell you this interesting thing. I needed a Bible about a month ago when I was doing a little bit of work in a parish. 
and somebody found a very old Bible, maybe came out in the 1930s, was, was published in the United States. And in the, inside the front few pages, there were photographs of the four or five North American cardinals, each one outdoing the other in splendor and glory. Oh my goodness, they really were princes of the church. Simplicity, the carpenter, the pilgrim saviour, all of that. Privilege and pomp and, you know, the Queen herself only very, very occasionally dresses up in all her finery. And I think simplicity and being able to listen with our hearts to the people who suffer the grind of every day. I'm very keen to use the word reference group. It's a term in sociology. Who are the important people you think of in certain contexts? So, okay, I've avowed poverty. I have access to funds. But if I'm going to spend money, who do I think of? Can I justify this spending of money for myself when I talk to this person and this person? Some of them very close relatives. So I think the reference group for people in authority and power needs to be the ones who, who have been walking on glass in bare feet, who have suffered heartbreak and grief and misery for so long. Those who have been abused. Those who have, those who have been abused, yeah. So how do you look now to the weekend with the Pope coming to Ireland? And he is going to meet, we've been told, with survivors of abuse. I think he will have spoken and listened with his heart to people who have been abused in many, many countries. And I gather from the speed with which he came out with that letter a few days ago, he must be grievously wounded in his heart. And I think that has moved him to do this in pre- unprecedented step. And when he listens with his heart to people who speak to him in Dublin this weekend, I really hope and I trust that it will move him further along to take concrete steps to put in place protection, prevention, healing, accountability, all of this. He is in charge of an enormous organisation and huge organisations are very often conservative by nature. So it's going to take him to have structures and systems around him, but he needs to be the driving force. I'm very happy to recall shortly after Pope Francis was elected that Archbishop Martin said, on a radio interview, I stopped the car to listen to it one day. He said, um, Pope Francis is a very nice man, but he's tough as nails. And I hope really that, yes, that he will combine both of those, that he will have the strength and the energy to have people around him and to have systems in place for systemic change. It will have to go right to the roots of a lot of attitudes and values. I think he's on the right trajectory, and I hope just meeting the Irish survivors will nudge him significantly further on.